We humans come hardwired with bias toward optimism. When we're planning a project, it's completely normal to underestimate how long the project will take, how much it will cost, and how annoying it's sometimes going to be to perform the tasks to pull it off. The optimism bias has downsides, but probably on the whole it's a good thing. Because if we really knew how hard a goal would be to achieve before we began, we might decide to stay sitting on the couch. I was once teaching a class that had something to do about seeds, and to make my point I planned to bring in props. It was fall, so I gathered some wind-dispersed seeds like milkweed and a few others. I needed some examples of heavy seeds that were animal-dispersed, so I went out to a park where there were a bunch of oak trees. I figured I'd scoop up some acorns off the ground, and maybe it would take me two minutes or so. But though the oak trees were there, the same as always, and appeared healthy, I couldn't find any acorns. It seemed impossible. It was acorn season. Those were definitely oaks. I looked and I looked. It never occurred to me that there could possibly be an autumn when an entire grove of oaks would make no acorns at all. And if I had known, I'm sure I would have jumped to the conclusion that this had to be due to an environmental crisis of some sort. Because what I didn't know at the time was that it's natural for oaks to make a bunch of acorns one year and to make none at all in another, and that the grove of oaks would likely all be on the same cycle as one another. Some years were a boom time for the whole grove, some years a bust. It was meant to be that way, just because there was no output of acorns the year I was there did not mean something was wrong. It meant that everything was going just exactly right. That's to say, not every downturn of acorn production or of an economic market and not every setback in society is unnatural or due to some terrible mistake. Sometimes it's normal. Expected even. And if we didn't have the optimism bias, and if we better understood cycles, maybe we'd tolerate with greater patience a year where our own endeavors are in a bust cycle. Maybe we'd be a little bit better prepared to expect a year with no acorns. I'm Jill Riddell, and this is The Shape of the World. On today's show, we're talking with a scientist who studies nature's cycles. She examines and charts vast, giant-sized trends that are cyclical by design and whose downturns are not because of human-induced catastrophe. And she observes how even within a widespread trend, there are always individual outliers who find a way to do something different. I'm Jeline Lamontagne. I'm an associate professor at DePaul University and an adjunct scientist at the Urban Wildlife Institute of the Lincoln Park Zoo. Professionally, I would describe myself as a population ecologist. So I'm interested in how populations change over space and time and the factors that lead to those changes. So, Jolene, you have a National Science Foundation grant to study the cycles of cone production in white spruce trees. To get us started, before we get to all the cool stuff you do, which is a lot, tell us about that research project. White spruce are one of many different species in the world that do this thing called mast seeding. And in mass seeding, that means that the plants produce very few cones or seeds for most years. And then every once in a while, they will produce an abundance of seed, like thousands and thousands of times more than they would normally reproduce. We're looking at reproductive synchrony in white spruce. 
reproductive synchrony, so you're looking at the rhythms and patterns of cone production between individual white spruce trees or across a population? When we think about mass seeding and synchrony is that most of the individuals within a population will be doing the same thing at the same time. So most trees won't be producing many seeds for a number of years, and then there'll be this boom year where they'll produce synchronously this massive quantity of seeds, both between a just within a population and between populations across geographic space. And the term you're using, mast seeding, that's M-A-S-T. And what does that word mean? So mast production, it's sort of just referred to as like the seeds that are being produced. Acorns are another big mast product. So I know that you're studying white spruce. Tell us what a white spruce looks like first. Sure. So a white spruce is an evergreen conifer tree. They can be up to probably about 65 feet. 90 feet tall. They, you know, look like your traditional sort of Christmas tree, but their needles are pretty pokey. They aren't as commonly used in people's homes as some of the fir trees. So spruces are spiky. Too hard to carry in and out. What is a conifer? A conifer is a cone-bearing tree, and that's going to be a tree that has needles. And often what we think about generally is Christmas trees, but then, you know, you have your spruce trees, your pine trees, fir trees, hemlock trees. Do some people use it as a synonym for evergreen? Some people do use it as a synonym for evergreen, but not all evergreen trees are conifers. And actually, there's tamarack trees, which are a conifer, but they turn a beautiful sort of brilliant yellowy-orange color in the fall. It's also known as larch. And then those needles fall off. So how did you select white spruce for your research? So when I was doing my PhD research up in northern Canada, uh, I was really there to study these interactions between red squirrels and white spruce, and I ended up becoming much more interested in the spruce trees than the squirrels. I mean, red squirrels are adorable, but um, <laughs> they're plants, so they stay in the same place. And yet they're you know these massive organisms that do these really interesting things. With mass seeding, there is synchrony that occurs, but there's also a lot of variability among individuals. And so if you have a forest of trees, you can go and tag those individual trees and go back year after year and see what those individuals are doing. What's a typical pattern for a population of white spruce overall? Like how often do they make cones? One of these big mast events, these big years of this big pulse of reproduction probably occur anywhere from every three to maybe seven years. But in those intervening years, there are still some individuals that are going to be producing those large seed crops. And that's what we're interested in my lab and what we're studying, is why are these individuals doing something different than everybody else? And have you found out yet whether those individuals are always the rebels and always doing something differently, or whether it's different trees in different years that have an odd pattern? So that we're still working on. So one of my research projects we started uh, in 2012. Um, and so we're, we're collecting numerous years of data. Uh, and it's still to be determined a little bit. Some previous research that I did showed that there are some individuals that are sort of out of sync with the rest of the population. Um, and one of my graduate students right now, we're going to be looking at genetic variability across individuals within white spruce populations to see if maybe that's playing a role. Why don't they just make a steady amount of genetic material and get it out there every year and try to increase their odds? Right. So I guess there's two things to think about when we think about fitness in organisms. So that's, you know, the number of offspring that they leave to the next generation. If you're a tree and you live 
to be 90 years old, you only need to replace yourself with one tree. I never thought about that. So the trees do that. So they don't need to re- replace themselves with many trees. Otherwise, the world would just be covered with white spruce. <laughs> right? Of course, all of those seeds aren't going to germinate and all of those seeds that do germinate aren't going to go grow into trees because of seed predators and things like that. But if the trees produced the same amount of cones every year, so squirrels and other small mammals and birds and insects feed on the seeds, and so if they produce the same number of seeds every year, then their predator populations would just increase to what we call the carrying capacity, right? That's the number of of animals that the uh, resources could support. So the, the seed predator populations would just increase in their population size so they could just eat all of the seeds. Can you say anything about what prohibits a seed from turning into a giant 90-year-old tree? What are the obstacles that a seed has to overcome in order to get there? Sure. So first, the seeds have to come out of the cone, right? So conifer trees, uh, many of them have seeds that are wind-dispersed. And so those cones that you see around Christmas time, you know, the pine cones that all the bracts, that woody parts that are open and you can see inside. If you look in there, sometimes there's actually still seeds in there. There'll be two seeds at every little end of that brack. So sometimes, you know, there are species of organisms like red squirrels that with conifers they'll go and they'll take the whole cones off the trees and then they cache them and then they feed on those seeds over winter. So if a seed is still in the cone, it has no chance of becoming a tree. Then of course there's things like fungus that might get them, other insects that want to eat them. So some insects are actually lay their eggs when the female part of the cone is open in the spring before the pollen comes and, and you know, blows into the, to the female part of the cone. And then that's when fertilization happens after that. So sometimes we'll take cones from trees and then we'll notice that there's an insect in there because it's bored out. So a nurse log is um, a tree that's fallen in the forest and it started to, to decay and sort of decompose. Um, and so if a seed falls on there, there's still sort of good sort of organic material that would sort of be like soil almost. And they can fit into like a little crack in there. And so the seed isn't just going to blow away. It can actually germinate in that environment and use the nutrients that are there. Often there's moss, and so that's going to hold on some moisture. And that's a really nice environment for a little tiny spruce seedling to, to start. So let's say that I'm that seed and I do manage to get into the forest floor or into a nurse log somewhere and I get a little bit of a start. Do you have any idea like what percentage of seeds make it that far? Off the top of my head, no, but it's going to be really, really low. Because again, if we think of that perspective of a tree can produce thousands of cones, which might have, you know, tens of seeds from 30 to 90 seeds, and that can happen every few years. So- thousands of cones per tree. And if they had, say, 60 seeds in each cone, that could be several hundred thousand, maybe even a million seeds per tree. And it's super unlikely that a seed will ever manage to land in just the right conditions to germinate. I guess I see why you're saying you think it's a low percentage that ever get to send up a tiny shoot with a leaf on it. Yep. And then once they do that, you know, then there's still other organisms that are kind of coming potentially eat them because it's, you know, the larger trees that have pretty spiky needles, but when they're they're young, that isn't the case. And so deer are one example of a species that might go and munch on a little 
little tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm feeling so sad for them now that I know these odds are against them. Okay. So, so <laughs> then even if they manage to get up and make a few branches as a seedling, um, they, if they don't get the sunlight they need, or what are the things that stand in their way from continuing to grow into a mature tree? Yeah. So sunlight is a really big one. Um, white spruce are, you know, not that shade tolerant and they tend to do quite well when they're in the sun. You know, in some of the research we've done, we've tried to tag little individual seedlings and which of course means finding them first. And even I'm surprised with how few small trees there are that are out there. So the number of seedlings is so small that you have trouble even locating any. Tell me, does it ever get any easier being a tree? Do a tree's odds ever improve? Once a tree actually gets established, you know, then they do quite well. Are white spruce used commercially? Yep. So they're used for pulp and paper. And also, you know, if you go to Ikea and buy shelves and stuff like that, often those will be spruce. And actually, sometimes you'll see that there's a blue stain and it's natural. And that's from blue stain fungus, which is related to spruce beetle, which is more predominant on in Western North America and is also a pest that'll kill spruce trees. So when you go to a place like Ikea, you see different things than the rest of us see? Uh, Yeah, I guess so. But you don't see that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm always commenting on the blue fungal stain. This is another example of how a scientist is viewing the same things we all see, but with a lens the rest of us don't possess. How many people have you met who know the white spruce as well as Jolene LaMontagne? Or who take the time to know any living thing so thoroughly and deeply? Tell us a little bit about your field locations. I assume you're not doing this work in the city of Chicago if you're working with white spruce. You work up north in three different locations? Yeah. So none of the mass seeding work that we do is is in Chicago. You're right about that. So some of the research I do is up in the north woods of Wisconsin, sort of around the Manaqua area. I also do some research in northern Minnesota, sort of near Cloquet, which is near Duluth, um, and then up in the Huron Mountains in Michigan. Part of what the Shape of the World does is show how scientists do their work. So tell us about your field research. White spruce country isn't something most folks have seen unless they happen to live in the North Woods or maybe vacation in Maine or Minnesota. So what's it like in the field? I think we're really fortunate that we do some research in some really nice places. Sometimes we'll be leaving from the field station we're staying at. You know, there might be some bald eagles that are perched on a tree that are calling and and maybe they woke you up that morning too. Then we have our drive and, and we're sort of fortunate that The weather, at least historically, has sort of been on our side, that we've had some nice sunny days. Um, Do you do all your research in the summer? Yes. Yeah. So our research is usually uh, between sort of mid-June to mid-August is sort of our time frame for being out in the field. We have, of course, our field vehicle. And in our field vehicle in the back is Rubbermaids that are full of all of our gear. And we do that because if we leave stuff at the field station, ultimately you might have driven to your field site and then you could forget something. So it's sort of like having a traveling caravan, like you've got your own office slash lab on wheels. Yeah, basically. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. As we're driving, we're talking about, okay, what are the things that we need to make sure we have? And maybe we've already, you know, pulled those things out before we left. 
but then yeah we'll get there and get set up and bug spray you smell the nice air and then of course you grab your bug spray and <laughs> make it less nice but but protect make... yourself from the uh, unfriendly influences <laughs> right yeah yeah and you know there's always lots of mosquitoes and and ticks and things like that but you know we're not doing field work wearing shorts that's for sure so we're taking care of ourselves kind of that way and yeah and then we sort of set our plan and so usually there's a team of three or four of us that are out in the field and maybe we'll split up into two groups to to do the work that we that we have to do and then we're moving through this forest that obviously there's a lot of spruce that are around but there's other species of trees that are there and you really do it's amazing we drive up to these field sites and we do research in the forest but we're driving on roads to get there and it doesn't take you to get too far back from the road to feel like you're in the forest. And I've always really liked that. What about wildlife? Do you see animals while you're out? One of my favorite memories was actually from up in the Huron Mountains a few years ago. Then I was up there in October. We were looking at um, how many cones had been stolen by the squirrels from these trees. Anyway, and so I'm walking through the through the forest, you know, to go up to this other tree and, and my field assistant's a little bit behind me and and I see this little animal scurry up this tree. Then I look up and I, for a second, it takes me a few seconds for it to click on what it is. And it's a pine martin. <gasps> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And this pine martin's up this tree, not very far, like maybe 12 feet up the tree. And it's staring at me and I'm staring at it. And I'm thinking, I might be the first human that this pine martin has ever seen because it's smelling and sort of like trying to catch the air and our scent. I call my field assistant over and because of the work we're doing, I have a camera on my shoulder because we're going and counting cones. And if there's more, if there's a lot of cones on the trees and we take a photo, so I have this camera on my shoulder and I start taking pictures of it. And the timestamps on my photos say that, you know, it was about nine minutes that this Pine Martin and, and us were just staring at each other. I've never seen a Pine Martin. It's on my wish list. What did it look like? They're adorable. They have this little whiskery face. Red pandas are one of my favorite animals to go and see at the zoo. And so it, to me, almost seems like a red panda, but on a really small scale. Okay, now I really want to see one. Jolene's work on the mast seeding of white spruce is useful in several ways. One, its general principles are applicable to a variety of different species. Two, it has impacts for ornithologists studying birds and food availability. And because Jalene's work is tracking many variables, that data can be useful to researchers studying the recent increases in the number of ticks carrying Lyme disease, for example. So the actual subject she's studying has applicability elsewhere. And the data she's gathering can be utilized by other scientists working on solving problems that are quite different. Also, this isn't all Jalene does. As a population ecologist, her work is varied, and some of the research she collaborates on has an urban component important for understanding nature in cities. Are there examples of mass seeding that we see in Chicago with some of the street trees or uh, typical urban trees? Yeah, so oaks mass seed, and a lot of the nut-producing uh, trees also mass seed. So it, it's a characteristic of plants that tend to be wind-pollinated, or wind dispersed. So any type of a plant or a tree that's pollinated by insects or other organisms don't tend to show this pattern because having highly variable patterns of reproduction over time wouldn't be good for your pollination ability the following year. So they follow the strategy of, well, they're not that variable. 
What do you do in your association with the Lincoln Park Zoo? I'm an adjunct scientist with the Urban Wildlife Institute at the Lincoln Park Zoo. We have this collaborative relationship that started off, we actually looked at tree cavity availability in different habitats within the city of Chicago. So tree cavity availability, that means like the holes that are in trees that wildlife might use for a nest? Yeah. So those cavities are actually either made by woodpeckers or they can just be caused by natural decay. So if a branch fell off and then some fungus gets in there, it's just going to decay that area away and that'll create that hole. And what did you find? Do we have good holes in trees for wildlife or no? Well, depends on where you are. So the first study that we did compared the forest preserves to city parks and residential areas. And so the residential areas, we just went and looked at the the trees between the sidewalk and the road because that's city property in 20 random areas in Chicago. And there's a lot of cavities, of course, in the forest, but not so much on our streets because a lot of those branches of trees are getting cut down. Right. We do a lot more pruning and care to make things look nice or to keep things from falling on our cars. And Right. Right. Yeah. And then the a more, more recent study that my lab did that uh, just recently got published, we compared cemeteries and city parks. So here you have these habitats that sort of look the same, but there's variability. And that's what I'm interested in my lab is variation and things just that you might expect to be really similar that aren't. So tell us a little bit more about your lab and the range of sort of studies that you do there. As a population ecologist, I'm interested in a lot of different things, and it's all about the questions. The questions I'm interested in are about variability. We do the mass seeding research on white spruce. We've also been doing work on behavior of animals using different habitats. And so we have done some work on redhead woodpeckers in the city and their habitat selection, comparing their right in the city and in parks and forest preserves to sort of much more natural areas. And more recently, I have a graduate student who's looking at comparing problem-solving skills of small songbirds. And so with that study, she's looking at forest preserves in the city of Chicago and at people's backyards, the birds that use those spaces. And then uh, she has sites out in rural areas, again, comparing people's backyards to forest preserve areas. You get to learn about so many different types of not just plants, but animals, and so many different strategies that life on Earth uses to stay alive. Yeah. One of the hallmarks of my career so far has been that I've been pretty diverse. I did my master's on trumpeter swan habitat migration during, uh, or habitat selection during the migration, and I've done some caribou stuff and sage grouse, and yeah. Yeah, it's not that common to jump between kingdoms. No, not so much. But again, it's I think because I call myself a population ecologist right. and I do have colleagues that, you know, they have one specific organism and that's what they know. I like the the breadth because then it's kind of whatever pops up that's interesting. I'll be like, oh yeah, I can collaborate on that. Jeline, thank you so much for coming in. This is Jill Riddell. And I hope this conversation sheds some light on the cycles of boom and bust that exist in our world and in your own life, and that you can enjoy not just your cycles of great output, but also the ones of rest and rejuvenation. Join us for our next episode when we'll be speaking with Janet Voigt from the Field Museum of Natural History. She's an expert on cephalopods, and we'll be discussing the intelligence of octopus and how it's possible even to recognize intelligence in something so different from us. You have to say, 
Is it smart? Is it adaptable? Does it recognize me? Does it want to explore? And when it explores something, it has a bad experience, does it not do that again? That, in one sense, is learning. Hope you'll join me for that. And until then, if you're personally in a high production boom cycle, I hope you'll enjoy it and roll with it. And if you're in a bust cycle, go with the flow and trust it won't last forever. Next season may bring you many acorns, so many you won't know what to do with such incredible abundance. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce the story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find The Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find more about Jeline's work and the photograph she described of that amazing pine marten. There's also a drawing of Jeline by the artist Rose Curley. The Shape of the World's producer is Ari Mejia. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Jeline LaMontagne to DePaul University, and to the Urban Wildlife Institute of the Lincoln Park Zoo.